0: Well, another cheery text for Lent, which is good, uh, out of the book of Malachi. Uh, And I think the message of this text is pretty simple. You probably picked up on it, although it doesn't say it explicitly in there. uh, God hates divorce. This is the message. As I said, it's going to be a fun one. Uh, But that's not the whole picture of the text, and it's certainly not the picture that I want you to leave with today. What I want you to leave with is knowing how much God loves marriage. Because a faithful marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. A faithful marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. Now, although this text and this sermon is about marriage, that doesn't mean that anyone who isn't married can just check out now. This text has something to say to every single person in this room, no matter what your stage or your mode of life. Because marriages are not private affairs. We may think they are, but in reality, they are profoundly communal. What happens in a marriage has grave consequences and repercussions for the couple, for the children, the wider family, the church, for society as a whole. A marriage is gonna affect all of these areas. But even more than any of those things, it has a profound impact upon our relationship with God. And when I say our, I don't just mean our as in mine and Carrie's or Alistair and Julia's or you and your wife's. It doesn't, that, that's not what I mean. I mean our as in the collective, I mean the entire church. It has an effect on all of our relationships with God because, as I said, it's a picture of God's faithfulness to us. Now, that might seem a bit of a stretch to you, but I assure you it's not a stretch. It really does have that kind of broad impact. And I think our passage this morning is going to make that very, very same point. So let's, let's get into it. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. The text this morning is focused on two particular problems that are happening in Israel at this time. The first is marrying outside of the covenant, marrying outside of God's people, Israel. And the second problem that it's dealing with is the problem of divorce. Now, I need to give you a bit of a context for this. We've talked a bit about this as we've done Malachi so far. But the Israelites have been in captivity in Babylon for several generations now. And they are starting to return back into the land, back into Israel. And as they return, they discover that there is already a pre-established society. There's already relationships, uh, trade guilds, all of these things that already exist, and they're not a part of it. So they arrive back, and they think maybe the easiest way of getting ourselves into this culture is to marry in, because that's, that's always a good way of doing it. But that's okay, as long as you're not already married. But it appears that they were. They were already married. They already had families. But this isn't going to stop. So they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to start divorcing their wives so they can marry wives of these people who are already in the land, and they can join the in crowd. That's what's going on. That's what most scholars think, anyway, is going on. thought they would marry women who might help their their social standing, help them get in with the in crowd. But what's even worse about that, I mean, that's pretty awful in itself, is that these women that they're marrying aren't Israelites. They don't follow God. They go after other gods, other deities. And they were daughters of foreign gods, as Malachi calls them. And not only does this just seem wrong logically to us as as followers of Yahweh, they shouldn't be going after the daughters of other gods, but it's actually expressly forbidden in the Old Testament that they would do this. See, before God allowed his people to enter into the land that he was giving them, after he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them a whole series of commands that they were to follow. And one of these commands was that they were not to marry the people who were already in the land. And the reason he gives is that they are going to turn you away from following God. They're going to turn you and your children away from following me. So don't do it. And he's so adamant about it that he actually says, I want you to break down their altars, dash to pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram poles, burn down their carved images. We have to completely destroy this. That's how serious he is about it. And it seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? But then the Lord tells them why in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, I don't know if the people just forgot that when they got back into the land, or if the appeal of being part of the in-crowd was just so strong that they decided to disregard it altogether, it doesn't really matter. What they end up doing is divorcing their wives and going after the daughters of other gods. And the problem is that it's, it's way worse than Moses said, because it's not just that they're marrying outside of the covenant, it's what they're doing in order to do that, divorce. Think about it, these are families that have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to return back to the land. They get there, to a community that's already established, and their husband, their father says, you know what, I'm done with you. I want to be part of this group. So you know what, you can fend for yourself. You don't know anybody, you have no money, you have no connections, no one to provide for you, but who cares, because I want to be part of this. It's enough to make you absolutely furious. Well, at least me, absolutely furious. And in the midst of doing this, the people keep coming to God with their sacrifices and their offerings as though they're not doing anything wrong. And when the Lord refuses to acknowledge these sacrifices, they cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, the text says. Why does he not accept our offerings, they ask. Um, Could it be that you're divorcing your wives and marrying other ones? Could that be it? Possibly. Yeah, And a profound point is being made here, I think. What happens in a marriage affects God directly. What happens in a marriage affects God directly. Or to put it another way, to sin against your spouse is to sin against God directly. This isn't a kind of uh, tangential type of sin. It's direct. And a good illustration of this, I think, is Psalm 51. This is the psalm that David wrote after... Uh, He was confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba. And he writes in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. David knows that to sin against his wife, to cheat with Bathsheba, is to sin against God directly. And the reason for that is because God is deeply invested in marriage. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 first. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. And then verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God is the witness between husband and wife. He's the one who gives the spirit that actually makes them one in the marriage. He's the ground, he's the foundation of marriage. Without him, a marriage isn't what it was intended to be. And in the end, he tells us that the ultimate goal of marriage is godly offspring. The goal of marriage is to raise children who know and who love God, who worship him and adore him. That is the goal of marriage. And yet, having abandoned their wives and their children, in order to marry women who don't know the Lord, they think they can continue to come and bring offering to God as though everything's okay. And it's not. It is not okay. Malachi begins this section by asking two rhetorical questions. Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us all? So why are we faithless, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, the covenant he's referring to is the one we've just been talking about, that covenant that God made with his people in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the nations on the earth. Not because you were great, not because you were more numerous than all the other people, but because he loved you. That's why. And then he says, so be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today, but the people don't. They profane the covenant by doing exactly what they were not supposed to do, which is to marry outside of Israel, to go after the daughters and the sons of other gods. They do this by divorcing their wives and marrying women who have no time for God. And as I've said, this is not okay. And the text ends in 2.16 with a solemn warning. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now this passage is notoriously difficult to translate. You can pick up any commentary and they will all translate it differently. And they even talk about the fact this is the most difficult verse to translate in the Bible, or one of them, which is awesome when you're trying to prepare a sermon. Very, very helpful. But everybody basically agrees that the gist of the passage is this. God hates divorce, and some translators even translate it that way. God hates divorce, and the one who does it covers his garment with violence. Now, this covers his garment with violence is obviously a figure of speech, but what it intends to convey is the gross injustice of divorce. And the one who does it stands covered in the blood of their victim for all to see. That's what Malachi is saying. Anyone who takes marriage lightly, who thinks divorce is merely a casual proceeding, should hear these words. He covers his garment with violence. Because God hates divorce. And that's gonna sound really harsh, I think. But you know who else hates divorce? People who've been divorced. People who've been through it. Wives, husbands, children, grandchildren. Anyone who's known the devastation of a family torn from its ideal, torn from what God intended it to be. I'm one of those people, and I'm sure lots of you are in this room as well. My parents divorced when I was in high school, and the last time I even lived with my dad for, on the same continent as my dad for longer than a few months was in high school, and before that it was junior high. So you can see this text isn't just for people who are married. It has effects on all of us. Because what happens in marriage affects anyone even remotely connected to it. Because marriage is intended to be a picture of God's faithfulness to us. So faithlessness in marriage mars the image of God's faithfulness. It mars the image of God's faithfulness. So that's the text and its context. That's what it's saying. But what is it saying now? What do we do with it today? So I want to talk more specifically about the application of this text. And I want to do that in a few stages. First, I want to talk to those who are married. Second, I want to talk about what this text says to those who are single, whether by choice or whether by circumstance. Third, I want to talk about those who desire more than anything to be married. And lastly, I want to talk about those who have been so wounded by marriage that they don't want anything to do with it. Have I missed anyone? I think I've got everybody, right? I hope not. Because this text really does have something to say for everybody. So first, for those who are married, the message of Malachi is simple. God loves marriage. He's deeply invested in your marriage. He wants your marriage to last. He wants it to last right up until it is only finally broken by death. That's his goal, that's his vision, the ideal of marriage. And the problem is that we're a culture that plays fast and loose with divorce but we're not the only ones. Clearly, the Israelites were doing pretty much exactly that, but nobody's taken it to quite the place that we have now in the 21st century where we're actually even writing divorce papers before we enter marriage, prenuptial agreements. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's, it's a legal document that basically states, in the event of divorce, this is yours, this is mine. We might as well plan for this because it's probably going to happen. Carrie and I were watching a movie the other night, and the father came to his adult son. He was getting married for the umpteenth time. And he asked his son if he would come and speak at his wedding. And his son responded, "Uh, No, thanks. I'll catch the next one. And it's obviously an extreme example, but I think it's pretty indicative of a lot of our culture's perspective and attitude towards marriage. No, thanks. I'll catch the next one. And the scary thing about it is that no one's actually going into marriage thinking that, except those select few you know, Hollywood celebrities who want to protect their Lamborghini from being stolen by their wife or whatever. Nobody goes in thinking that it's probably going to end in divorce. Yet the statistics are going to tell us exactly the opposite. The majority of them are, in fact, going to end in divorce. Why? Well, the culture would tell us it's because we grew apart. Uh, humans aren't really wired for marriage anyway. We change too frequently. Uh, we wanted different things. I'm bored. I don't really love you anymore. Or even worse, I realize that I actually never loved you. But none of those things is right. Malachi tells us this is because we failed to love the wives and the husbands of our youth. We have failed to love the wives and the husbands of our youth. We forgot that the person to whom I'm bound is God's daughter, God's son. One he lovingly created, one he tenderly raised, one he died in order to make his own. That's the person I'm bound with. And it's with that in mind and heart that I'm to love her and to care for her or for him. That I'm to lay down my life for her and to submit to her in reverence to Christ. I'm to be faithful to her and to love her as though my life were in fact bound up with hers, because it is. We left our fathers and our mothers and we were joined together with a portion of the spirit in our union. So of course divorce is to cover my garment in violence. It's dividing one flesh, one blood. And just in case you're starting to think that I think marriage is all fairy tales and rainbows, I I know that it's not, believe me, I know that it's not. It can be hard. It can be really, really hard. Harder than Carrie I ever thought it would be. But it's good. It's so good, too. So much better than we could have imagined. Ah, oh, it's not good. I've got to stop looking at you. Um, so my exhortation to those who are married is this. Fight. Fight for your marriage. Fight for the bride of your youth. For the groom of your youth. And I use those words intentionally. Our pastor from back home always refers to his wife as his bride. I mean, they've been married for a very long time now. They never had children. But he always says, I'm going home to my bride. My bride and I are going away. And I always thought it was a bit weird, but it's lovely, actually. It's a reminder of of who his wife is, the bride of his youth, the one that God had given him to be his wife. It's beautiful. The other thing I will say is that when the walls of your marriage begin to crumble, don't panic. Expect it. They're going to. And seek help. Don't wait until it's too late. Go to someone that you trust. Come, come to us. We can point you to good resources, to good people. We care deeply about your marriages. Because God cares deeply about your marriages. And I've said over and over and over again this morning, marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. And that's precisely why it's so devastating to see a marriage broken by faithlessness. It distorts our picture of God and his faithfulness to us. I'll never forget one day I was studying at Regent. I was at home, working at my desk in our bedroom. And Carrie came in. She had just got off the phone. And she told me the news about a couple from our church back home, a couple that we loved, that we looked up to, that we respected. She told me that the husband had decided that he didn't want to be married. Anymore, And he was leaving her, and he was leaving their two kids. This was a man who had helped shape my faith, who I looked to for what a godly man and husband looked like. I was so angry. I reserve a special kind and flavor of profanity for that kind of action. Not only because he's damaged his children's image of what a father is supposed to look like, but because he's damaged his children's and his wife's image of what the father is supposed to look like. And so I thank God for his word in Malachi here. But even more, I thank him for Jesus, who's shown us the father's faithfulness, who's shown us what the faithful bridegroom is actually supposed to look like. The bridegroom who is willing not only to forgive us, Our bride for our constant adultery, our constant turning and running after other gods, but the bridegroom who actually died in order to make us his bride and to unite us with himself. And so it's to Christ that we point the children of that faithless love, a love that's not really love at all. All right, okay, so we've covered what this text is saying to those who are married, but what about those who are single? what does this text have to say to you? We need you. We need you. Even if you're happily single, you've chosen to be celibate for the sake of the gospel, it's wonderful, but you're never far from a marriage. Whether it's your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your church community, you are surrounded by marriages. You can't escape, I'm sorry. And as Paul reminds us, those who are single have a special ability to pour more of themselves into the lives of those around them. Those who are married are always going to be primarily concerned with their own household, their own family. And that's okay, but it means they just don't have the time and the energy to invest as fully in others, in the marriages of others in their community. And don't think even for a second that because you're single, you don't have anything to offer either. When Carrie and I I've gone through some rough patches over the past few years. It's been a friend of ours in Edmonton, in fact, who is single, who is one of our biggest supports. He's a keen observer of people, and he has a pastor's heart, thankfully. Uh, But more importantly, he's willing to ask really hard questions. How are you doing? I notice this about the way you two interact. How's that affecting your marriage? Mike, I notice this about the way you treat care. You're kind of a jerk sometimes. Tell me a little bit about that. How's that affecting your marriage? And I am forever in his debt for asking those brutally hard questions. Because the reality is that we all need someone to ask us those questions. We actually all want someone to ask us those questions. And then who's actually going to listen to the answer? But we're just too shy to do it, or we think it's not really our place. And I am not advocating, hear me, to just walk up to anybody who's married you've never met and ask them, so how are you doing? Honestly, tell me now. How's your marriage? That's not not what I'm saying. There has to be a relationship established, but those questions need to be asked. One of the problems facing those types of relationships, though, is that those who are married tend to spend most of their time with other people who are married, and those who are single tend to spend most of their time with other people who are single. It's just the way it goes, And, and Regent, where I just graduated from, is notorious for this, and I think I was one of the worst offenders at Regent. Carrie's far better at this than I am. In fact, in my first year, I met with this group of three other guys, all of whom were married. We met once or twice a week, and we were known as the married guys. And this other guy would come up to us and go, oh, check me out, I'm married. My name's Mike, I'm married. Became a bit of a running joke, but I think there really was a barrier there between us. It was real, and it's not just in school that that happens. It happens in churches. It happens in communities as a whole, that there really is that kind of a barrier. So what I'm saying is that we need to be very intentional about building relationships, spending time with those who happen to be at or have chosen a different mode and stage of life. We need each other, we need each other deeply. And I want us to be the sort of community that doesn't have those types of barriers. OK, so that's for those who are single. But what about those who are single or dating, but want nothing more than to be married? Well, at least you did before this sermon started. (laughs) This text is a warning about the seriousness of this relationship. Whom you marry is deadly serious business. Not only because of what Malachi is telling us about divorce, but because this text is a dire warning against going after the daughters and sons of other gods. What does that mean exactly? That means that if you're dating, or even thinking about dating someone, who is not a follower of Jesus, think again. That's what Malachi is telling us. It doesn't matter how hot they are, how great they look in skinny jeans, what a perfect fit their personality is with yours, or how much you have in common. It doesn't matter. What matters before all of those things is that they know and they love Jesus. And that might not be something you want to hear. It's a hard word, but get ready, it's going to get worse. If we're going to be serious about only dating and marrying someone who is a follower of Jesus, it might mean that some of you never get married, that you never have kids. It hurts me to even say it, not because I've had to make that sacrifice, but because I know what I have and what it would cost to lose it. But the alternative is marrying someone who's going to lead you away from Jesus. Someone who's not on the same page about raising your kids to follow Jesus. But if Malachi is any indication, that sacrifice is worth making. Because the alternative is to risk losing Jesus for the sake of gratification now. Whether sexual gratification or just the gratification of companionship. But hear this, Jesus is not aloof from your struggle. He doesn't take joy in it. One of the things I find so remarkable about this text is how tender God's compassion is for those who have been passed over. And I include in that group not only those who have been divorced by spouses that have been faithless, but those who for the sake of following Jesus have been passed over by marriage altogether. God cares for these people. He cares for you. He cares for you so deeply. And he sees your pain. He sees your loneliness, your isolation. And he knows, far more than you or I will ever know, total and complete isolation. The kind of isolation that only comes by death at the hands of the ones you love. Now I want to make a brief comment here to those who are married in this regard. We need to be generous with our lives. We need to be generous with our time, and with our families, and with our children. We need to make space for those who don't have kids, but would love to. And I get that that's hard too, with schedules, and timing, and the busyness of everything. So before anything, we need to slow down. We need to make space in our family for the community as a whole. Okay, our last group, we're almost there. What about those who've been so hurt by marriage that they want nothing to do with it? Well, this passage is for you too. Because if nothing else, we can see in it that your experience is not what God intended marriage to be. Marriage as God intended it is to be a place in which we learn love and trust. The kind of love and trust that can only come through a covenant witnessed by God. A covenant in which God gives of himself in order to make two people one with all of the agony and the joy that that entails, God doesn't deal lightly with those who have broken that covenant. Because to do so is to mar the picture that marriage is supposed to be of God's faithfulness to his people. So if your image of marriage is damaged and broken, if you don't even know what a father or a husband or a wife or a mother is supposed to look like, God wants to give you a new picture. He wants to point you to Christ, the perfect image of the Father, the perfect bridegroom, willing to lay down his life for his bride. And we can't forget that we have all, all of us, committed adultery. We've gone after the daughters of other gods, and we've desired nothing more than to be free of God. And yet God sent his Son the groom who died in order to make us his bride, while our garments are still covered in his blood. That's the image I want you to leave here with. That's the image I want you to cling to as the one source and the one foundation of marriage, Christ and his church. Amen.